In ExoPolitics Today, the week in review, we're going to be taking a look at some of the pushback against David Grush's testimony about alien reverse engineering projects that he gave at the House Oversight Committee. We're going to be taking a look at some of Sasha Stone's reflections on the global elite, the origins of contemporary and historic geoengineering efforts, super soldiers, and the Artemis Accords. You're listening to ExoPolitics Today with Dr. Michael Sala, your source for the uncensored truth regarding the human, extraterrestrial, global, and political agenda. Click the like button and subscribe to this channel. And now, here's Dr. Michael Sala. Well, welcome to ExoPolitics Today. We're going to look at some of this testimonies, implications, the way in which David Grush's story has made profound impact on the public consciousness and how there's been pushback against that. Now, there was some immediate pushback by Dr. Sean Kirkpatrick, head of the Alden Main Anomaly Resolution Office, who wrote a pretty critical letter of David Grush's testimony to the House to the House's National Security Subcommittee. Now, it's very unusual for a serving bureaucrat to openly criticise a congressional hearing that involves whistleblowers. So David Grush came forward, shared his background, shared his story, and he was criticised by Sean Patrick, even though this is a congressional testimony and it's sworn testimony, so that means that David Grush could be prosecuted if he lied to Congress. But nevertheless, uh, he was criticised by Sean Kirkpatrick, who took exception to some of the things uh, David Grush had said. In particular, he criticised Grush's statement concerning whistleblowers, witnesses being harassed, injured or even killed as a result of talking about these alien reverse engineering projects. And uh, he was also critical of uh, David Grush's association with the Arrow office when Grush was at the National Geospatial Agency. So, you know, those are kind of fine points. And, and later on, we'll see that Grush responded to those points. But I thought it was very interesting that Grush got this kind of pushback. And what it suggests is that there is a effort to try to mitigate or to try to undermine the significance of David Grush's testimony by those that want to keep the current system as is, which is that you have very little uh, that's revealed. You have this office in the Pentagon, the Arrow office, where you have a gatekeeper like Sean Kirkpatrick, and he decides what does or doesn't get released into the public arena. When you have Congress making the determination as to what does or doesn't get into the public arena, the gatekeepers don't like that uh, because Congress, as you can imagine, is going to allow a lot more to come through. So very interesting that that Grush is getting this kind of uh, pushback uh, by people. I think it, it shows that the deep state uh, wants to perpetuate a system of secrecy that goes all the way back to the 1950s 
there was a book written in 1955 by Major Donald Kehoe where he talked about the secrecy group, a group of Pentagon officials, deep state officials, not unlike those that are behind this pushback against Grush, trying to stifle, trying to prevent uh, more information coming forward. So, so that's uh, Sean Kirk, Kirkpatrick's letter and its significance. I want to move now to uh, this Pentagon spokesperson, Susan Goff, who added to this uh, pushback. And she was also very critical of some of the elements of, of Grush's testimony. And the, the big contribution I think that Grush made was that he put on the congressional record testimonies by people such as himself and others that he can name and present to Congress in a closed-door hearing, people who are aware of a multi-decades-long UFO reverse engineering program. So he is prepared to, to come forward and share that information. And what you have is this pushback by Kirkpatrick and Sue Goff uh, saying that there's no evidence for any of this. Well, of course, the problem here is that any evidence that Grush offered in Congress, in public, concerning these types of topics would be evidence that would get him into a lot of trouble if he were to release it in an unauthorized way. Because there are strict penalties for unauthorized release of classified documents. And that's something that is, is very relevant uh, to Grush's coming forward because he does have a lot of details which are classified. And so he has to walk a very fine line into how much he can publicly reveal and what he can only reveal in a skiff or that's a sensitive compartmented information facility where members of Congress can hear what he said. And he's already done this. I mean, this is the thing. He has already testified in closed door sessions to both of the intelligence committees of the Senate and the, and the, of the House of Representatives where he's talked about some of these details, presented those to members of Congress. Uh, but that was a closed hearing. This is an open hearing in a separate committee, which is the Oversight Committee. Uh, and so uh, this is material that he has to be very careful in what he can release. So uh, that's interesting, again, that he's getting pushback from, from the Pentagon that want to do kind of like um, damage control over what he's been revealing. So now I move to another story I covered this week, which is uh, Sasha Stone's interview. And Sasha Stone is a very interesting uh, figure in the, um, let's just say, the patriot movement, if you like. He is someone that has been very active in uh, promoting uh, the of, of the patriot community of Donald, Donald Trump, uh, Vladimir Putin, and he has taken this position because of his experiences. His background is that he was a former rock musician, and because of his family connections, his 
connections he made during his music industry times, he began a humanitarian initiative for a new earth back in 1999. He called that uh, Humanidad. And after several years, that became very successful or it achieved a profile where the United Nations asked him to come in and head up a coordination of NGOs trying to bring about this new earth, trying to bring about some in major international reform. So he was given a senior position in the, in the United Nations to promote this coordination between non-government organizations. But after two years, he found that the system was incompetent and corrupt, and he withdrew. But nevertheless, the experiences he got from that gave him some insight into what is happening um, around the world in terms of uh, global elites, uh, corruption. He has been very active in speaking out against uh, a group of, let's just say, Satan-worshipping people that do strange things to small people, if you get what I'm saying there. And uh, he, very interesting, also has some insights into the Anunnaki that is very interesting, especially as it relates to monarchical systems. And that's, that's very interesting because one of the things I found in, in doing uh, some of the, the research into the Anunnaki uh, was that, yes, they clearly have a, mo a monarchical system and it's not unique to them. Uh, the Pleiadians, who the Anunnaki work with, also have a, a monarchical system. So it seems that extraterrestrials do have these monarchical systems where you have these enlightened god kings, these enlightened rishi kings or rulers, as was known in, in Vedic times in India. And this is because these individuals had a very, uh, let's say, um, unpolluted DNA, or they still were connected to source energy, and so they were able to be capable of revealing some deep truths. Now, how you separate that from uh, those who achieve power through force and through uh, corruption, uh, that's a very interesting question, but I think that is something that we as a society uh, will be looking at um, in the near future as we have this kind of restoration of DNA, the awakening of these God Kings. What, what does it mean to be an enlightened ruler? Do we have like committees? Do we have monarchical systems coming back? All very interesting. He has some fascinating takes on that. So I would recommend listening to that interview uh, with, Sasha Stone. So here's a very informative interview uh, involving uh, two people that have been very instrumental in not only encouraging David Rush to come forward, but also in, in having the July 26th congressional hearing uh, move forward, as well as the closed hearings that have occurred in, in Congress that led to the United States Senate passing this unprecedented UAP Disclosure Act for 2023. Now, the person behind that, uh, there have been several 
senators behind that. But surprisingly, one of the big supporters of that act was uh, Senator Chuck uh, Schumer, the the Democratic leader in in the U.S. Senate. And you know that's kind of strange because uh, Schumer is is associated with the deep state, and for him to be supporting this UAP act, it's like wh- why is that? And I, and I did talk about that last week in the Week in Review where I went over some of the reasons for why they're doing it. I, I think the most plausible explanation is that the military-industrial complex want them to move forward with this UAP Act uh, because, as I said, uh, there's a lot of money to be made in producing fleets of anti-gravity spacecraft that have been reverse engineered from some captured extraterrestrial technologies. So um, that, I think, helps explain why the Senate is behind this. But nevertheless, uh, in this episode of Weaponized, where you have George Knapp and, 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 and Jeremy Corbell, where they, they talk about the uh, Grush's testimony, uh, the congressional hearing, uh, they go into why they believe he's the real deal rather than a psyop. So, you know, there's two kind of attacks happening against Grush. Uh, Grush's testimony. I've already covered one where people like Kirkpatrick and and um, Susan Goff, the Pentagon spokesperson, criticised Grush, and that's that's official pushback. But there's also a lot of criticism coming from uh, you guessed it, the UFO community itself. There's a lot of UFO researchers that are saying that David Grush is part of a psyop, and they point out his connection to a number of questionable people within the uh, UFO community, uh, people like uh, Louis Elizondo, uh, the connection to Christopher Mellon, and others who are in some way connected to the CIA. And the argument goes, well, guilt by association, basically. If, if you're working with these people, if you're associated with these people, and they are vehicles for some CIA CIA initiative, then you are probably part of that initiative as well. And and what what these criticisms focus on is that uh, David Grush, as well as the two other witnesses that testified in the congressional hearing last week, they all agreed that uh, these UAPs are assessing uh, the capabilities of American America's military arsenal that they're conducting uh, surveillance of of the American military, and they they constitute a possible uh, national security threat, and and that is kind of like the the main focus of many of those that are critical of Grush, saying that he is perpetuating this national security threat hype, which really is something that's just um, that's being manufactured to make the UAP issues sexy and something that that Congress will run in. So I, I think it's a fair criticism, you know, those that do focus on the UAP threat, uh, that, uh, you know, because the UAPs really aren't a threat. I mean, they've been known to be flying around for decades now, and many of them are reverse engineered. Now, th- this is where I think there is 
something that's overlooked by critics of David Grush, the saying that, well, you know, he's he's pushing this kind of national security threat uh, uh, narrative that people like uh, Christopher Mellon, Louis Elizondo, uh, that that others have also been pushing. Now, the problem is that uh, David Grush's testimony is much deeper than that. I mean, that is certainly the perspective of other people like David Fravor and Ryan Graves, who testified in that congressional hearing. But, I mean, the main thrust of Grush's testimony was that uh, there have been these multi-decades-long reverse engineering programs of captured alien technologies. Now, that has nothing to do with the national security threat. I mean, it's just saying that for decades now, extraterrestrial craft have been secretly recovered brought into government or corporate facilities, and they're being studied and reverse engineered. That has nothing to do with a national security threat. Nor does Grush's testimony that witnesses, whistleblowers, have been harmed or killed for coming forward to talk about these reverse engineering projects. And again, that has nothing to do with portraying UAPs as a national security threat. And so I think this is the problem with critics of David Grush. They're kind of throwing out the baby with the bathwater, saying, well, if you're associating with these questionable characters like uh, Louis Elizondo, Christopher Mellon, that we think are part of a CIA psyop, well, you must be a part of that psyop as well. And, and they focus on Grush recently joining an organization called the Soul Foundation, where uh, some of these uh, individuals are involved in that organization. It's it's kind of like guilt by association, and and I, and I think you know people are losing sight of the fact that what Grush has been revealing has never been revealed before, and it takes the uh, never been revealed before within a congressional setting. I should add that's the important thing here. So within a congressional setting, for the first time, these reverse engineering projects are being revealed. Previously, all the Senate hearing, all the congressional hearings up until Grush's testimony, have always focused on UAP sightings. That UAPs are out there, that they're being cited, that there's solid evidence for these, and, and by the way, they're a national security threat. So Grush's testimony takes us one step further, a big step further than that, and actually draws attention to the fact that whistleblowers are being killed. So I think uh, the, the points that uh, George Knapp and, and Jeremy Corbell make in, in Weaponized in defense of David Grush's testimony uh, are important points to consider. So, well, I would recommend listening to this. And, you know, like all of the tweets, all of the X's, I should say, that I'm discussing, you could get those in my X feed or Twitter feed. Okay, so uh, here we have uh, David Grush's CV was submitted to the U.S. Congress uh, for the 26th uh, hearing, and it's now online. So this is something, uh, you can see the, the full document here. It, is, it, it just outlines the various things that he has achieved in his career, his competencies, the p various positions he's held, uh, his education, a master, uh, you know, bachelor of science degree, a U.S. Air Force intelligence officer, uh, and it, it goes on and on. Uh, Master of Arts degree, Master of Public Administ Administration. So he's got a, 
a, he's got a very credible background and clearly he is someone that has put his career on the line in coming forward with this information. And nowhere in there does it say that he was working with the CIA. I mean, the, the closest you get uh, to this is his experiences uh, working with the um, with the National Geospatial Agency and the National Reconnaissance Office, both of whom have very close relations uh, to the CIA. But nevertheless, he was performing uh, as a, an intelligence officer, uh, liaising with them, with those organisations, uh, on the subject of UAPs. And precisely how he did that, uh, you, you can kind of like go to his CV, go to his... Uh, testimony to find out more about that but he's a very highly credentialed individual and and it's very unfortunate that there are a lot of ufo researchers who are attacking him and and the attacks are kind of taking this strategy of um, death by a thousand cuts where they pick up these little little things like uh, david grush says that while he was a representative for the nga to the Arrow office. And so then uh, someone like Sean Kirkpatrick comes along and says, well, uh, Grush was not a representative uh, to the Arrow office. So people will seize on that and say, well, you know, Grush is lying. I mean, now we can throw you know, all his testimony is now questionable. You know, the point that Grush makes in response to that criticism, and, and he does make that in, a, in an interview that I'll soon cite, is that the relationship he had with the Arrow office was was fairly fluid, but there was a relationship there, a connection there, and I, and I found this this kind of cut by a thousand this this strategy of death by a thousand cuts strategy was similar to what happened with uh, Colonel Philip Corso, like over two decades previously. One of the things that I found very interesting was that the the biggest critics of Colonel Corso, who was a, also like Rush, a, a decorated military official, lots of credentials. Uh, in, in Corso's case, he was a, a, a lieutenant colonel. He showed, uh, he testified that, that he was the head of a special, that the research and development desk within the uh, Pentagon uh, dealing with foreign uh, technology development, that he was in charge of this desk. Uh, foreign technology desk for over a two-year period. Well, what the UFO researchers found was that there was testimony or there were documents saying that, yes, he was the head of this desk, this foreign technology desk, uh, but for three months rather than two years. And they seized on that and said, well, look, so Corso is lying. Uh, he said he was head of that desk for two years. Documentation shows he was only there for three three months. And so they attacked him for that rather than looking at that documentation and actually corroborating Corso's testimony. Uh, because, you know, these kind of like positions often that are created are done in a, in a fluid way within um, uh, official organisations, especially when it comes to UAPs. So I think that's what's happening with uh, David Grush and his CV is well worth uh, looking at if you wanted to come to your own uh, decision about his credibility. Okay, now I move on to this interview that I did with uh, Dane Wigington. Uh, 
uh, geoengineering the earth through secret weather modification technologies. Uh, he is someone who is very about uh, weather modification technologies. Now, now Dane Wigginton has been studying geoengineering efforts since 2002 when he noticed things happening at a forest estate that he runs or owns uh, in the Lake Shasta area of Northern California. So Dane Wigginton noticed that there was a reduction in the solar output that he was receiving uh, through the solar panels and that that showed that there was something happening with the weather. And, and so that started him off on his journey and he found a lot of historical documents and videos confirming that weather modification has been happening uh, for, for many, many decades. And one of the really amazing videos he was able to dig up was a speech by uh, then Vice President Lyndon Johnson in 1962, where Lyndon Johnson said very clearly in a speech that weather modification techniques have been developed and whoever controls the weather controls the world. I mean, that was a startling speech. So in 1962, sorry, Lyndon Johnson, the future president, was acknowledging that there were these weather modification technologies that were secretly being developed and that there was a race really to develop these because whoever controlled weather modification technologies would control the world. So uh, Wigington has on his website, Geoengineering Watch, he has shown that uh, this, he has shown that this weather modification uh, goes back many decades, even into the early part of the 20th century when the very first weather modification uh, technologies took off. And it's that this is part of an agenda to reduce the global population uh, to somewhere around 500 million, which was what the Georgia Guidestones had. And in, in addition to weather modification, he also points out that some of these technologies have been weaponized, that they can be used as weapons. Uh, and that's very relevant to my research on exopolitics because extraterrestrial spacecraft are visiting the Earth. They've been doing so uh, at least since the 1930s. And some of these have been targeted uh, using some of these directed energy or weapons that are also used for weather modification. And and these weather modification technologies are very capable of steering hurricanes and producing earthquakes in specific locations. So well worth watching that interview. If you are unfamiliar with the work of Dane Wigington, he has a wealth of information that is worth listening to. So, yeah, that's on uh, exopolitics.org, geoengineering earth through weather modification and you can go to his website, geoengineeringwatch.org. So now we move to this short interview that David Grush did where he was accompanied by the former Inspector General for the Intelligence Community. So it was a very short interview uh, 
but Grush was accompanied uh, by this individual, Charles Chuck McCulloch, the very first Inspector General of the intelligence community. And, you know, this is a very, very significant um, because what it shows is that Grush is being helped in ensuring that he doesn't step over the mark in terms of what information he reveals publicly that could get him into a lot of trouble with the authorities. And, and because um, McCulloch is uh, someone who is uh, very familiar with the law, uh, very familiar uh, with the kind of admissions that can be made publicly uh, that are permissible without getting Grush into, into problems. Uh, and this is very sensitive because uh, there have been criticisms of Grush saying that, well, he's always saying, I can only release this in a classified setting. I can only give you details of the, the various corporations, of the individuals, the locations involved in these reverse engineering programs of captured non-human uh, technologies. Uh, some people have been criticising Grush, saying, well, you know, if you know it, just spill the beans, man. Don't just keep hiding uh, be behind a classified setting for revealing that information. Now, the, 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 the problem is that if Grush were to reveal that information in a public setting, he would be disclosing classified in information in an unauthorised manner, and that could land him in jail. So that's why uh, Charles uh, McCulloch is playing this role in shepherding Grush in revealing what is going on. So I, I think this goes back to this kind of historic conflict going all the way back to, to the 1950s where David, where, where, when, when you had uh, Major Kehoe talking about a pro-secrecy group wanting to ma maintain the secrecy system and a pro-disclosure group. So he, he Kehoe said that there was a, a secrecy group and a pro-disclosure group back in the 50s. And that has not changed. And I think what we are seeing now is that there is a, a pro-disclosure group such, and that involves people like uh, this Charles McCulloch who are trying to help Grush navigate the minefield in terms of what he can safely reveal or not in a public setting as opposed to a classified setting in a SCIF facility to a closed session involving a, a congressional committee. So this is very significant and uh, th there are other key takeaways in this very short interview uh, that uh, David Grush and Charles McCulloch gave uh, that they mentioned that the five eyes countries are involved. So that's the United States, Britain, Australia, Canada, and New Zealand, that they're involved in these classified reverse engineering programs. So that's something that's of great interest to uh, People from these Five Eyes nations, I know certainly uh, Australia, it's of great interest to the Australians. And, and one of the people, well, the person who actually interviewed Grush, uh, that did the, the long interview that was released on News Nation, uh, uh, Ross Coulthart, is an Australian journalist. And, and he was a skeptic to begin with, 
But as he dug into Grush's testimony, he realized that this was real and that Australia is involved. And, and what's very interesting here is that uh, I believe it was last week or maybe the two weeks before, I discussed a Canadian MP, Larry Maguire, who wrote a letter to the um, Minister for Defence for Canada saying that, look, you've you got to get ahead of this UAP or UFO issue. You've got to start revealing stuff because the Americans are doing it, uh, the, the British are doing it, the Australians are doing it. And if we and if we in Canada don't start doing it, we're going to look very, very foolish when these other countries that are part of the AUKUS agreements, that is Australia, United Kingdom, United States, it's a security pact where they're sharing all kinds of sensitive um, nuclear technology and so forth, that if, if we don't start doing it, that the Australians, the and the Americans, the British will, and we'll be made to look very, very foolish. So that is that is what's happening. Uh, we are in the midst of a UAP or a UFO disclosure that's going to come through official channels, that everything is being set up. You have congressional hearings. You have legislation now going through Congress. Uh, the, the Senate has passed uh, the UAP Disclosure Act, which has been incorporated as an amendment into the National Defence Authorization Act for 2024, which eventually will be passed. And so there's a countdown now because once that act is passed, there will be a review board set up uh, to oversee all these UAP records. And so uh, there's a countdown and uh, people are seeing this and they're saying, you, you've got to get ahead of this. Now, why is this countdown on? Why are people like Chuck Schumer behind this? As I said, I discussed this last week. I think ultimately it stems from the fact uh, that uh, space arcs, extraterrestrial motherships are here and that they are releasing more and more probes and at some point they can start revealing themselves. And governments know this, the militaries know this, at the, at the highest level. So they want to get ahead of this rather than being blindsided by them all coming forward at the same time. Okay, so here's an interview that uh, Mel Hostorek did on Veritas Radio with Elena Danan, author of this um, Area 51 book uh, that's called Confessions of a... Area 51 Insider, Insider, the, the final testimony. This concerns Stephen Chua. So this concerns his testimony. And, and he was saying that he was taken to Area 51 back in the early 1980s. And because he had this ability to generate a high level of gamma brainwave activity, that he could pilot a mind-to-thought technology that was reverse-engineered from extraterrestrials. And that was applied to a F-15F series fighter plane. People haven't heard of that before. Uh, you have F-15Es, but no one's heard of an F-15F. Well, Stephen Chua says that at Area 51, he piloted an F-15F and that that incorporated this fly-by-thought technology and that normal pilots, normal Air Force pilots that tried to interface with this reverse-engineered extraterrestrial technologies uh, suffered brain damage uh, and even were killed from that. But because he had natural gamma brainwave activity, 
and didn't need the pharmaceutical products that the Air Force pilots were getting, he was safe from doing that. So that gives us an insight into these reverse engineering projects that go way back into the 1980s. Uh, I, I doubt that Stephen Chua's case is part of the historical review, but nevertheless, if at some point uh, the files were released of reverse engineering um, at places like Area 51, you would find that probably this Singaporean super soldier was brought into Area 51 to help uh, with the testing of a reverse engineered alien technology. Fascinating. And in the interview uh, that you can uh, watch on YouTube or, or going to uh, uh, the Veritas Radio website, uh, you can hear much more about uh, Stephen Chua. You can get his book where he talks about how he was trained, uh, how he worked under uh, the Singapore Prime Minister Lee Kuan Yew in the, uh, I think it was from 1981 up until 84, and was trained to do things like fight against uh, reptilians that were kidnapping children um, all over the world, something that is a key part of this extraterrestrial presence that hasn't been really talked about too much. So definitely worth uh, taking a look listen to that interview, or if you haven't already done it, uh, then uh, uh, buy the book uh, Area 51, Insider, The Final Testimony of Stephen Chua. Okay, so now this is the final story that I'm going to be covering, and, and this uh, concerns Argentina becoming the 28th country to join the Artemis Accords. Now, the Artemis Accords, these are bilateral agreements. So you have 20, uh, uh, 28 countries, including the United States, that are part of these accords. So that means the United States has signed the Artemis Accords with 27 other nations. So these are not multilateral accords. Multilateral accords where uh, you, you have multiple nations signing a treaty, and that once that treaty is signed and then ratified, it gets housed. Uh, by the United Nations in an archive, and and they oversee it. Uh, this is not a United Nations treaty. This is these are bilateral agreements with the United States, which are signed and then eventually ratified. And and what that does, what the what the Artemis Accords does, is that it ensures uh, U.S. supremacy in space for decades to come. So. Right now, you can see that the list of countries um, in these flags, um, many, many countries here that have signed on to the to the Artemis Accords, uh, too many to kind of run through right now. Uh, but uh, these countries acknowledge that the United States is a country that they recognize as having a leadership in space and that they want to work with the United States in harnessing the resources of space under a framework dictated by the Artemis Accords. And the Artemis Accords spell out a manner by which countries can collaborate in these joint ventures in mining space, mining asteroids, mining the moon, uh, having space tourism, all of these different ventures, and doing it in a way where safety zones are protected, where safety zones 
where you have space tourism, you have space mining, uh, that or any other kind of ventures happening there in uh, scientific uh, research, uh, exploration. I mean, that's also another area that the Artemis Accords uh, would, would cover. So that these accords create a framework where nations can collaborate in establishing safety zones where all these things are happening and that countries that violate these safety zones can be dealt with um, in, a, in a manner where, the, where then you have uh, the uh, US Space Command and Space Force coming in to ensure the protection of these safety zones. So the Artemis, Artemis Accords are quite ambitious in terms of what is the long-term goal. So what is the long-term goal? It's something that I spell out in my uh, book, Space Force, Our Star Trek Future. And, and that is where I discuss in that book, and I have a copy right here. So let me just bring that up for you. Here we go. Space Force, Our Star Trek Future. If you haven't got a copy of that, uh, definitely I recommend um, having a look at that because there's a chapter in there where I discuss a 40-year plan to create a Star Trek future. Now, this plan was developed in 2019 to, uh, by the predecessor or the forerunner to the United States Space Force, which back at the time was called uh, US Air Force Space Command. That was used as the core for creating Space Force as a, a separate command or as a separate military service within the Department of the Air Force. So in this chapter uh, where I discuss the future, or the Star Trek future that Space Force wants to create, uh, it, what was hypothesized by all of the experts that were assembled there, experts from around the world, from the United States, from NASA, uh, the different space uh, military organizations, they proposed eight future scenarios. Uh, three scenarios where the United States would be dominant, three scenarios where China would be dom dominant, and two scenarios where neither country would be dominant and it would be just like a Wild West in 2060 in space. So you can you know, imagine what that would be like. But of the three scenarios that were identified as ones where the US would, would be the dominant space power, uh, the, the optimal scenario was a Star Trek future. So they actually used those words, a Star Trek future. So that's actually a goal of Space Force that was assumed from um, the report of this workshop held by uh, Air Force Space Command back in 2019 in Colorado Springs, which, which was titled Space, The Space Futures Workshop. So Space Force wants to create a Star Trek future, which is why I named the book that. And in, in ensuring a Star Trek future, what, what the United States Space Force is doing and what NASA are doing is putting together a wide-ranging space coalition. So that's why the Artemis Accords are at the center of this space coalition where in sometime in the future you will have a multinational military space force 
Um, and that's being formed right now around Space Command. So Space Command working with its allies. So Space Command is already working with uh, the Five Eyes countries. It's working with uh, Germany, France, other countries, Japan, also uh, working with the US Space Command. So Space Command is going to become the future Starfleet. And the Artemis Accords lay the foundation for something like uh, United Federation of Planets, a, a kind of like a, uh, where, where you have a, a body, a legislative body making rulings about space and about uh, our future. So the Artemis Accords are very, very important. And as they expand, uh, we are going to be seeing more and more of how this is going to morph into this Star Trek future. Now, the big country uh, that is not part, well, there, there's a, some, some big holdouts at the moment, but the two most important holdouts are Russia and China. Now, now Russia is a holdout just by virtue of the fact that at the moment, uh, geopolitics has ostracized Russia. But behind the scenes, Russia works closely uh, with Space Command. Uh, or they have they have a history of collaboration, and 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 Russia is still working with the International Space Station. So once the geopolitics over Ukraine is sorted out, I think Russia will reluct will reluctantly join the Artemis Accords, or support that. Now China is the big holdout. Now China uh, is has been ostracized. It's not part of the International uh, Space Station. Uh, I, I, China is growing very rapidly, setting up its own space navy, trying to set up its own lunar uh, research facility, trying to get countries to sign on to that. So it's trying to set up its own alternative. Now, this is where geopolitics comes in. If the United States is able to keep it together as a, as a nation, re maintain its sovereignty and its presence, we're going to have a Star Trek future as Space Force wants to create. If the United States implodes because the deep state has been trying to sabotage the United States, and you know, I don't want to go into geopolitics, into how they've been doing it, but you know, anyone that looks dispassionately at the United States can see that there are a lot of things happening in the United States which are by design to undermine and collapse the United States. And the deep state wants China to be the top dog. The deep state has poured a lot of resources. It's relocated a lot of its resources to China uh, because the deep state wants China be, to be the global hegemon soon and it wants the, the future to be one where China will be the hegemon. And now that, you know, given China is today a communist state, that would be a disaster for the US to implode and China to become the dominant power on earth to become the global hegemon and for it to then be the one that dictates the, the future. And this was something that was foreseen in the Space Futures Workshop. So there's a lot of reasons why uh, there are efforts to ensure that Space Force, Space Command are competitive, remain uh, viable in the future how the U.S. and why the U.S. military is, is being supported. Uh, but, ne but nevertheless, uh, if, if the United States disintegrates into civil war, which we can see from the, the kind of strife that's happening right now in the United States, if the, the United States were to descend into civil war, uh, the deep state would 
would uh, be very happy about that uh, because that would then ensure that China becomes the, uh, the global hegemon and that the future would be one where the deep state gets to call the shots through China. So that is uh, really what I wanted to cover this week in uh, my Week in Review. Uh, again, if you want to see the sources, uh, just go to my Twitter feed. That's just uh, twitter.com forward slash Michael Sala. I don't know when they're going to change that to, to x.com. Maybe it's already happened. Uh, uh, now, in the meantime, I, I want to announce that in two weeks' time, I'll be doing my next webinar where, where I'll be looking at... Um, I'll be looking at some of these events that I've been discussing this week. Uh, the uh, It's going to be focusing on what's happening for the rest of 2023 and uh, the implications of worldwide UFO disclosure. Because as I mentioned, this is not just something that is relevant uh, to the United States. Other countries are involved in this phenomenon. So... The webinar information you can get to my go to my website to find out more about that. Um, for uh, those of you that are watching this uh, on YouTube, uh, please uh, like and share this because YouTube does use algorithms now to kind of like shadow ban a lot of these uh, videos. So this is your way to be able to support my channel and get this information out there. So that's it uh, for, for this week. I hope you enjoyed that information and I look forward to coming back next week. And in the meantime, there'll be uh, two interviews that, that come out uh, this week on exopolitics.org that you can watch. Uh, one will be uh, the next update concerning uh, Thorhan Eredjian and there'll be another update from JP. So you can look forward to that so from this week. So thank you for watching. You have been listening to Exopolitics Today with Dr. Michael Sala. Please remember to like, share, and subscribe to this channel. Join or start a conversation in the comments. Take the time to explore the vast library of best-selling books, webinars, and podcasts by Dr. Sala. Visit exopoliticstoday.com. Thank you.